Welcome to Addiction to Recovery. Our purpose and passion is to bring you not only the science of addiction, but also the patient perspective and how the two relate. Welcome back. Hi, everybody. Um, <laughs> so funny. We're so tired, but, you know. Well, you know, like. It's five was, o'clock in the morning when this airs. Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, we had gone on a stretch of, of you know, guests. And then um, our last episode was of me. And, um, you know, it, it was just a follow-up of it. It, it. it gave me a weird feeling. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I share this stuff often you know i Mm -hmm. go to i go to treatment centers and um you know i I talk with family about it and it never really bothers me i don't know the last time i mean it was just interesting the feeling i got after sharing you know that last stretch of drug use it was Do do you think it's because like if you're at a treatment center talking at you know giving your story or testimonial or whatever you guys call it is you can see the people and you know they're all there for the same thing. This is like, we're taping. I know the story, but everybody listening doesn't know you and hasn't potentially used drugs. And so it's a different type of audience. I think that, and I can actually visually see the response from people when I'm in, in person. Mm -hmm. And so I can, it, it kind of builds and I can, I can feel the, almost acceptance of yeah i get it you're you're okay you know and everything but when i'm when i'm sharing it this way man it was, it was a way different experience so um i guess it's a, it's a growth thing and everybody needs that but um you know it it definitely gives me hope that that i can share it and still feel okay right you know because a lot of it is shame driven and i think um, well you shared it without anyone having to like give you a pat on the back. Right. And I, you know, nobody, and and eventually we're going to bring up King baby syndrome again, but it was, uh, it is that, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to get that pat on the back or that I'm getting the, the justification or the, the acceptance from people that, yeah, we get it, you know, great for you. Good job. Or, Mm -hmm. or am I, am I really trying to help people change? And so I guess that's a growth topic for me um but i do wanted to just um you know extend my appreciation for the opportunity to share it in a different platform um because it was it was a very difficult time in my life and you know it's part of that growth okay i said it it's out there nobody's gonna everybody can um research that now and and, you know it's only been a couple days obviously that just aired and in the last couple days there's been a couple people though from your past who have reached out i mean you've been talking to intermittently but they have heard that episode they've listened already and it was interesting to kind of hear how they responded you know the things they maybe new parts of or all of it but i think it still went probably maybe better than you thought yeah i guess so i mean but there again i gotta check myself because do i feel better about it because they gave me positive reinforcement Mm -hmm. or you know or whatever it is i guess i guess although the one person that i did see give this to you kind of said i didn't know that 
It wasn't like, oh my gosh, you did it. It was like, yeah. I heard it wasn't, it wasn't the praiseworthy response. It was acknowledgement. And yet it was normal conversation like two normal adults would have. So yeah. to me, that even almost is more meaningful than the, I don't well, know. Well, and, and I think that, you know, not to make this about me and I'm trying to, trying to make a point here. I don't know exactly what it is, but I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that there is that, that, um, that healing with sharing your testimony. And um, I guess, I mean, for those of you who are in recovery or early, you know, recovery or even in, you know, addiction and you want help, that is a freeing process of, of being able to share your story without feeling any condemnation, any judgment. Hmm. My, I guess my plea to the people that haven't been through addiction and might be an audience to somebody that is sharing their story. This is an opportunity for you to share, show love and show forgiveness and uh, lack of judgment. Right. And uh, I think that's very important as people are starting to come out of the woodwork and, and feeling more open about sharing their stories. And this is not any type of a shot at AA and the anonymity thing and everything that goes along with that. But if there is somebody that does feel comfortable sharing their story, please be open to it. Be right. open to being the ears. Be open to being that that vessel of of recovery of of healing because everybody needs that. When when they're coming out of an addiction, they need that opportunity to share their story without that judgment that they've been fearing. And that's the key is that they're all this stuff is a fear that keeps them sick. And once they experience that, that lack of judgment, then that fear of judgment goes away. And so I guess maybe that was the point I was trying to make. All right. And this episode is open. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally shifting gears. And this is why I haven't shared my story yet. Yeah. We'll <laughs> Way there. to drop the guilt bomb on me right now. Right. Shame bomb on Heather. Um, someday, not yet. Okay. So today we're going to switch gears a little bit. I mean, a lot of bit, um, and talk about adolescence youth. I don't know. We're not going to give you an age range. We're talking adolescence here. No, we don't want to put ourselves in a box here and say, right. this, is, this is the only people, this is adolescence. These are, you know, and hopefully this is going to help parents, teachers, you know, we're getting close to the school year where we are getting to the point where fall sports are starting to to ramp up and the idea that I've always had about me being a coach, maybe being able to go back to help coaches understand kids a little bit. This is step one, I think, in, in understanding this is a, this is kind of the baseline of what we're hoping to get out to people about adolescence and, and drug use, dr drinking, all that substance use stuff. So one thing I would say though, about the word adolescence, I think is what I was trying to get at is, this is not high school. In my head, adolescence, like if we're having this conversation at the high school level, we're talking varsity sports, we are way too late, it, especially now. Like some middle schools, you're too late. And I'm not saying this. So this is something that parents, I don't care how old your kids are, you need to be aware of. Doing this, like you said, school's about to start. I was actually at the high school, fall sports, everybody goes to meeting with my son tonight. And... The policy in my hometown, um, 
and this starts in ninth grade. So at the high school level and, you know, there are seventh and eighth graders playing up that level, but this doesn't apply to them. That's not permission. That's just saying it doesn't apply to them. So starting in ninth grade, if they get one violation caught with any type of alcohol, paraphernalia, even if they're holding someone's vape, it's a violation, just so you know. They're out, you know, two weeks, at least, was it two or three events? Minimum. Two weeks or two games, which No, I think is. it was, it might have been three, though, games well, in two weeks. Maybe it's changed since I've been involved, but. And then the next offense, it jumps up to like seven Four. weeks. No, it's like seven weeks, at least seven contests. The third offense, it's 21 weeks. Isn't that I the mean, end of the It's yeah, It's like, it's the but, but here's the best part. It's cumulative. So if you have your first offense as a freshman, you're not even hardly playing anything. Your second offense as a junior, you're at the 14-week the mark. It doesn't start over every school year. It's, you have, it's the whole time you're in that high school building. That's just my, my little, you know, I'm sitting there and, you know, some of the kids I know and have had drug talks with them and have been talking with my kids, younger kids' schools about trying to get into the schools because I think it needs to happen. But anyway, so this talk is going to be more like things to look out for. Let's talk about why the kids, the youth, adolescents use. Um, before we get to that, I just want to piggyback on the cannabis and adolescents and cannabis and use episode we had with Dr. Sarah Polly. We've had people say, you know, is it really something that's addictive? And there is actually multiple quotes out there that are contrary to popular belief. Marijuana is addictive. Mic drop. <laughs> it is. I it mean. is. It is. And it's just important to remember that I'm not going to go through all of the things with it. But, you know, that is part of this whole youth thing. One thing with what Sarah said um, in, in part of like the education and in family stuff is showing the trends or, you know, focusing on the fact that most kids aren't using. Social norms. Social norms, thank you. And that is like a big thing when you're looking at data is everyone talks about all these the badness. And so everyone thinks everybody's doing it when the reality is is not everyone's doing it. And so it's important to really, you know, look at that as well. However, let's look at some data. 70% of high school students will have tried alcohol by graduation. What are your thoughts, 70%? I mean, you were a teacher. Yeah, I guess, that, I mean, that's tried it is, is uh, and, and all, these, all these numbers, all these stats can be uh, manipulated to show somebody's point. You know, well, no, I, this is this is this not, is based on the monitoring the future study. I, this I is that. the I big that. one. I'm okay. just saying you can change words around. You know, if you use that seventy percent have tried it, that's a huge number. But the other social norm is how many percent haven't. use it regularly or right. ha, are are actively using it. Right. So trying it is is you know, I, I guess if you if you want to be a shock and awe thing. Then you can you can manipulate the, the information. Right, that's what right. I'm saying. Yeah, and but, I don't have all those data things right. in front of uh, me. Like, uh, what percent use it at this frequency right. would be? But the reality is, it's out there. It is, and out that's there. and that's the point that I've always tried to make when I was working with you know high school students. It's out there, and it's choices. You know, put yourself in positions that are are positive, because you don't know where that 
where that's going to go from there. So this is where the data gets interesting is half of high school students will have taken an illegal drug. Which does not include marijuana anymore, apparently. And no, it's still illegal for that age. Okay, well, still illegal. Now, this is not including alcohol, though. But that's my point: is it still illegal for alcohol? So, but alcohol is not included in that data point. The whole point is: is this whole kind of thing is most illicit drug use starts in the teenage years with exposure to substances. Now. All the data I've looked at, you know, we the gateway question got brought up and we'll do a whole research thing on gateway drugs. I have, since I have started doing addiction medicine in 2016, every patient that's a new patient gets this form they fill out and it's got every drug listed. Age at first use, how did you use it? Age of last use, did you think you had a problem with it? How, it, like all the stuff. And 100% of the patients who were in my office for an actual opioid use disorder, meth use disorder, alcohol use disorder, started with a alcohol or marijuana sounds, I mean, across the board. Yeah. And almost within a year of each other, alcohol and marijuana, within a year of each other. So the, the heightened ages of when this is important, 14 to 20 are like the big years. So uh, back to what we're talking about. Um, Unfortunately, that number is probably going to go down, like 13, 12, yeah, because it's, bad. it's just it's just so prevalent out there now. Right. Here is, I mean, we could go on and on about what percentage of people with any type of use disorder ever get treatment for their addiction whatsoever. It's horrible numbers. But if we're talking twelve to seventeen year olds, only ten percent of twelve to seventeen year olds who have substance use issues, like we're talking diagnosable substance use disorder, um, only ever get treatment. And most of them are getting treatment because of being caught in the criminal justice system already. So why, why is that? Why is that important? That, no, but why, 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 why you, is that? Yeah, why, are, um, why is it such a low number? That get help? Yeah. Because people aren't recognizing it. That's the biggest one is people don't recognize it or they recognize the behaviors and write it off as, oh, they're teenagers and they're going to try gotcha. it. Or the f- we'll go to ACE scores. You know, they're around it and their families. It's the norm in their family and their environment. Kind of like Sarah would talked about, like, marijuana is not going to become the new norm at parties. Like, is that now kids are just going to think that's just what you do at a party? And so a lot of it's recognizing it. Um do you and think, kids are good at hiding things. Yeah, that's true. Do you think that part of it is that uh, maybe a parent does not want them to then get labeled at, as that if they seek treatment in like 11th grade? Do they, do, does a parent then think, well, if I send them to treatment, then they're going to accept the fact that they're, they have a problem? You know, based on what I've, and I don't have the data in front of me on that, based on what I have seen, I don't see much of that. Um, it's, there's, there's a couple different kind of parents. There's the ones that are like, oh my God, I caught my kid smoking one time and now they need to go to treatment. And it's like, okay. Right. They yeah, like, the catastrophizers. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the helicopter parents. And then you have the ones who are just like, oh, kids will be kids. Like there's, there's not really that. Oh, we're going to send them a treatment, and now that is where they're going. No, it's typically not that way. Most adolescents, 
I think what, again, what I've seen is parents try to do it themselves. They try to parent that child that they have now caught using things. They try to bring them back in to parent like, you know, the more hands-on. Not not that they weren't hands-on parents. I'm just saying when kids get to be teenagers, you know, they get more independence. So all of a sudden they try to bring them in and like, I don't want to say helicopter them again or just, but they try to get more FaceTime with their kid rather than bringing them in to get help. They think that I can do this. And I don't know, maybe it's a parental embarrassment thing. That's what I was just going to say. Okay. Probably a little shame if they actually have to send them somewhere. Well, then there's that stigma that's a, not just attached to the kid, but also the parent. And then, right, like, you know, it's, it's almost like mental health stuff. I mean, I know, I know of, you know, that there's parents that are probably. Um, not wanting their child to go get help for their mental health because they take it as a failure. Right. Well, and when we talked to Mike a couple weeks ago, you know, the parent, he said that too, you know, like it's, it's hard as a parent to not take ownership of that. And something you did wrong. Right. And that's, that's a barrier, I guess, as you could call it as, as far as to get help for, students for adolescents is that there's a there's a shame factor and even more so than an adult that's trying to get trying to get help or needs help right and and what you just said at the beginning just your shame you talking about your own story you know and then as the parent and i think it's hard because i can't i can't put myself into those shoes at this point so i can't say this is what i would do if it's my kid um because I would think most people would feel that way. Like, oh my God, I'm going to be judged for this. But it's important to check yourself because not getting your kid help is also not going to help them longer term either. Well, and I I had talked to some people before. I had a, I had a drive at one point that I thought every school should have an LADC, a licensed drug and alcohol, licensed alcohol and drug counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that people could, you know, the kids could get help. They, they, right there, they could get help. And one of the things I heard was, but the parents have the say, and they're not going to want their kid to be labeled at that at that early age. And so they're not going to have that. They're not going to play along. Well, but that's see, that's that's also misinformation. Um, and this is this is a big part of my job. And this is. Under 18, when it comes to, to birth control, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to mental health, the parents don't get to have a say. Like, if they came to see me in a clinic, like, as a family doc, as an addiction doc, I can write a prescription for birth control pills for that 16-year-old without parental consent. I can have all the conversations. I can do all the STD testing. I can have the conversations about drugs and alcohol, and I can't turn around and tell the parents unless... There's a couple unlesses, like they're telling me they're going to hurt somebody else or hurt themselves. Um, Obviously, I can't do any kind of procedures to the child without parental consent. Now, as a provider, it's always important to try to get that adolescent or youth to want their parent to be involved and try to have that conversation to let the parent be part of it. But if there's a LADC or a peer support or a counselor at a school the youth is more than welcome to use that service. Parents don't get to have a say in that. No, but they do get to have a say in whether or not that LADC is going to be in there. 
you know, well, by school boards and by, yeah, by and that's and there's a fear involved right. there. Is it is it going to normalize being in that position? You know, to be I'm going to go see my LEC. Well, it normalizes. It's just like the people that are against you know um, handing out condoms. Is it going to make it so that it's more normalized? Drug is more normalized. You know, it's it's a debate. The, but, the, the whole yeah. But there, the reality is, is I think that. Um, there is that stigma that's that's involved with asking for help right. and i think that it's even more apparent in the in the adolescence because you know the may, maybe the kid does have the right to go get it but without having the parent sign off on it mm-hmm. but there's still that overwhelm you know like every kid has and not everyone but the parents have a lot to say when they're in that age group and, right you know and then still there's still um ways that the parent can make sure that it doesn't happen. Well, and I think as a parent, and I don't have teenagers, and you also don't want to force that on your teenager and then put a further divide in your already trying to get independence teenager. You're already feeling that kid becoming, you know. I mean, you've mentioned this too, that, and now you're going to, like, talk about this problem you have potentially. That might feel like to the it might feel like to the parent you're going to be pushing the kid further away. Right, and like you said though, a lot of the ones that do get help are because they're involved in the justice system already. Right, you know, and that's forced upon them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just I don't know, you know, what the answer is. But you're right that the the age of of first use this is where it's important to actually learn about it. Right. And that is where I am like huge into the, the, the stuff in the schools and talking about the preventing, the prevention, the, yeah, the normalizing, not using, the educating on, okay, we understand. I mean, we can punish the heck out of it all, you know, and do I, do I believe that every school district across the United States follows their policies to a T? Heck no. Give your star whatever name a sport player gets busted, do I fully believe that that kid's actually going to get that same punishment as if it was a bench warmer? No, I don't, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's my own assumptions here, but I think the problem needed to have been talked about ahead of time, personally. But anyway, I could get off that. So who is at the highest risk? You know, we talked about ACE scores a couple episodes ago, and, you know, so the kids that have them higher adverse childhood experiences, I mean, it's around them. They have, you know, potentially more genetic risk and all of that. The younger the person starts first use, like we just mentioned, the higher risk of having a subsequent substance use disorder, male, any type of incarceration or being in trouble with the law. Smoking cigarettes actually does put them at higher risk of other substance use. Um, as adolescents, um, yeah, anything the- else? I think that um, it's important to look at the the idea of getting this information out because I've I've always said that this is part of the problem is, is that we're in a reactive situation with addiction exactly. instead of being proactive and do some prevention work it's like it's just not wanting to talk about it but you know I've being involved in in coaching you know I've already reached out to a couple of friends of mine to try and get in to talk to coaches about it 
because I also don't believe that once we do have a situation where there is a violation that we're doing anything positive from it. It's just a timeout. It says, right, it's, it's a shame. Mm-hmm. It's a shame-filled timeout. You can't play anymore, so you're just going to have to sit on the bench, feel shame, and then after two weeks you come back. No type of uh, you know education about it, nothing. Ever, you're, it's just like jail. You're missing the whole point of this is an opportunity to help change that trajectory of that person. So it's interesting you said that with the punishment thing. Um, I was listening to this thing about decriminalization in Portugal, and they had this guy from Portugal on, and he was saying how they do things so differently in the criminal justice system in Portugal. And, like, for instance, in the United States, you get pulled over, you're not wearing your seatbelt, you have a fine, you get a ticket. In Portugal, you get pulled over, you're not wearing your seatbelt, you have a four-hour course you have to go to and pass a test. You don't get a ticket. It doesn't go on your record. You don't have to pay a fine, but it's the educational component. Right. So it's, it's. I mean, I don't know. Some people might think that's, I mean, but the, some people might think that's a bigger punishment, but you're getting forced to like have to learn like, why are we doing this? Not just, here's well, a we're ticket. We're a very punitive country. Exactly. We, we punish rather than educate. And I think that that's, when, when you're dealing with adolescence, there's no better time to make a difference than at that time. Well, and they're still, their brains are still developing. Well, and that's just it. Like the frontal lobe, which is that executive functioning, which is the adulting, that's the thing that makes the rational, like, should I make this choice or not? If we're only punishing, those are supposed to then carry. So the next time they're in that same situation that they think, oh, I was punished the last time. Okay. Their brains aren't developed enough to even think that, you know, you have to do it ahead of time. So so the punishment thing is already, like you said, it's too late, but it's not necessarily going to help the next time. Oh, but then we've seen that in just general parenting, right. you know, adding a negative isn't going to change behavior. Right. You know, it's not necessarily, okay, you're going to get spanked as a child. You do something, you're going to get spanked. Does that really change behavior? I mean, we're not going to have a spanking or, discussion, no, but, but no, I, mean, I, I in, in anything, you know, in I a agree. school, in, in, in a, in a classroom, you know, right. are we going to be more positive reinforcement? Are we going to spank a kid or like put them in timeout and then not talk to them about that timeout and then just put them back in the environment and expect it to change because, well, he's going to be afraid of that timeout. Right. Right. Um, there's this, this program that I'm going to, we're going to do a, a whole episode on this, but it's, it's really trying to help these kiddos, especially the really young ones who might be exposed to some of these things. And, and rather than getting punished for things we don't understand what's going on at home, we'll talk about that at another time. But, yeah, I think a lot of this is that positive reinforcement um, instead of the punitive. And, and just educating. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, what did I do wrong? I don't really know what I did wrong. I don't know why it was wrong. Well, I'll explain it. Right. And explain how the reason why I don't want you to to run out towards the street is because there's a possibility of you getting hit by a car. Well, and that's, and I'm just going to grab you and spank you because you went running towards the street. You know, is that going to change the behavior? No, you have to actually educate about it. You just say, well, you're going to run on the street and there's going to be a negative consequence. Wow. We're on a tangent here. Um, which again, that was the whole purpose of that cannabis episode, you know, try to like educate on here's what's going to happen. 
Um, a couple more risk factors, and I think these are big ones, especially now, is sexual orientation, gender identity, um, feeling that sense of rejection at home. So inadequacy at home or feeling like you don't fit in at home, that is a risk. Um, and we've heard this for decades. You know, you don't feel like you're fitting in at home. You're going to try to fit in somewhere else. Uh, I think right now, though, it's talked about so much more. Uh, thoughts on that? No, I mean, it's, it, the the idea, though, is, is that if, if there isn't an, a, an environment at home that is welcoming, people people go find a place where people are welcoming you. And a lot of times, negative behavior you know, drug use, alcohol, smoking cigarettes, you know, people want you to join them. And, and, and then, you know, that, that becomes like a, a safe place for them. Right. And then it just kind of enhances those negative behaviors. And there's, you know, resiliency we talk about with ACE scores. And it's it's always so fascinating if you look back at, at people who've had all these high ACE scores and the protective factors that help them not, you know, the ACE not impact them as much. It can be just one person. And it's funny because a lot of times that one person that saved that person from going down where the ACE score was sending them was a teacher or a coach. And I think that's, we we could go on and on because you were a teacher and a coach and, and, you know, that impact. And I just think that's like such a cool opportunity, especially as we're starting in next school year. But Anyway, so why the top five reasons why adolescents do drugs? I mean, if we want to like break it down, we talked about the risk factors, but the top reasons. Um, the number one thing is, is, and this is what adolescents think, say, is, is to fit in. And this is that whole, actually, let's normalize the fact that not everybody is doing it. But they say they're doing it because they think others are doing it. They fear not being accepted. So it's... Everybody else is doing it, I'm going to do it, even though that's not true. Or they have such social anxiety, like, I want to hang out at this party too. And, you know, it's the take the edge off thing. And I, I was involved in a program that worked with the social norms. And one of the things that, you know, we had state funding. And one of the things that that funding did was it offered us an opportunity to, to like, have events, sober events, for the kids, you know, the bowling night or, you know, a, a dance, anything like that, that promoted the, the sober, you know, the sober decisions. And, right. um, you know, otherwise if you, you know, let's face it, a lot of the things that are done in high school are parties, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have like these big group gatherings when they're not doing stuff like that. Right. So if you can have those events that promote sober life, those are the things that, you know, get a bunch of the kids that are choosing not to use together, have fun, and then that shows that this well, isn't it's like a, a little kid play date, but yeah, for big kids. Right, and, and it gives them the opportunity to see others doing the same thing. Right. Whereas just, it's, it's a mob mentality. So if you are somebody that really wants to fit in and you only know of one activity where a lot of people are together, and that is to go drinking, that is a place where they'll fit in. Mm-hmm. So why are we not offering these opportunities to have non-drug you know, or alcohol events right. promoted? 
It's, and and I it's think, the, the idea of being promoted. And I, I love that you just said that because I think promoted is the thing. You know, they have these school dances or they have, I think the way that they're promoted sometimes make them sound lame to youth or they're just like, here we have this event. But I think if they were promoted in such a way to like emphasize the fact that like, it can still be fun and maybe there's not going to be alcohol there like at the party. There's got to be verbiage in there that you can promote it emphasizing sober. And they're not. That's the thing is that program that I was involved with, they made sure to not hide away from the idea that there's no alcohol here. Right. Promoting that and saying, don't be afraid to come here because I think a lot of kids are afraid to go to these events and then feel pressured. Right. So if they know that this is something that is being monitored, that this is something that, uh, you know, a group of kids, I, I think that's what we did. We had, um, uh, it wasn't like a contract, but it was sort of like a contract that says, I'm going to be involved with this program and I am promising that I'm not going to use drugs or alcohol or, or tobacco, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to be a leader in this, in this movement and, and, that way the kids that are looking up to them know that this is something that is a normal thing. Right. Okay. Number two reason to feel good. So this would be to get the feeling of pleasure or so what, you know, the euphoria of whatever the drug is causes. Um, but let's also take into consideration that some of them are using it. To no, no, that's the next. Okay. Well, <laughs> if, if they are saying that it's using it to find euphoria, maybe that is, to fit in as well. Right. Because there's that natural um, euphoric feeling when you're accepted. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong, though, in bridging these two to feel good and then to feel better. I mean, it's kind of, they're, they're they calling them one, separate. They yeah, go together. They go together because when you say feel better, maybe they don't even know they don't feel good. Right. They just know this is this is a baseline and I'm not quite feeling right. You know, I'm anxious I, I, this is my norm. And then when I get that substance in me, then I feel better, but I'm thinking that it's making me feel good. Right. They don't know that they're not feeling normal because their normal is anxiety, anxiety, and depression, depression and, and stress. And then they, they added substance in and now they feel normal, right. but normal is feeling good. And it's in, there was a study and I don't have it at, hand and it wasn't adolescent based it was adult based but it was really this interesting way how they looked at this 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 they did the, they studied a whole bunch of people and basically it was interesting because they couldn't always tell what caused what it was the whole chicken or the egg thing where some people ended up using they didn't even realize they were depressed and like you just said then they felt normal and so they were treating their depression with the alcohol um, it was which an alcohol-based study, which is a depression or a depressant, yes. And then some people realized, well, no, the alcohol is causing me to be depressed. They stopped drinking. They felt better. So it was kind of this like, which one caused which? And it's this very fascinating study out there. But a lot of it, especially um, with adolescents, is this unknown. You could, like They can't describe the feeling of distress or anxiety or depression. They just don't feel right. And so, yeah, they're they're basically treating what else is going on. Right. Self-medicating. Self-medicating without 
without intention, I think well, yeah, is a big exactly. thing. There's, there's no intent in it. They just are doing it. Next one is to do better. And this comes down to the pressures and societal pressures and the competitive society to do better athletically, to do better academically, um, to enhance their performance. Uh, you know, this is the, I can actually go to the next page here. And interesting, there's this huge study done. Um, this was done in the middle teens. So this is, I don't know, five to eight years old now, but looking at Adderall and Ritalin and there was twice as much Adderall and twice as much Ritalin abused in the college age students they looked at compared to the same age students that didn't go to college. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Um, Stay up late, study hard. Right. You know. So it's, it's, I think at face value, it's almost backwards. You're like, no, the college kids are going to do that. No, they actually abused prescription stimulants way more, twice as much as the people who didn't go to college. Right. And then, you know, like I was thinking about it when you said to do better. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't lump alcohol and marijuana in that to do better category. Mm -hmm. um, but I do believe that you know, in this day and age, the the stimulants like Adderall and Ritalin have been shown to by people have experienced better results. Right. I mean, I'll be honest. My first year of high school hockey, I went and I popped a bunch of ephedrine for tryouts i had this amazing amount of energy and uh i went to med school with a guy who played d1 hockey and they did the the pseudofeds as well i did like, not understand that that was a bad thing uh, but maybe that was my first positive reinforcement from a from a drug that hey i'm i mean i made the varsity team so let's go you know well, and this, actually, we should get to an episode on this, too. This would be the same argument. We could go back to coffee and caffeine, you know, and the energy drinks. Like, we, I mean, this is all going to be coming. But prescription stimulants, the, the use of them, the misuse, I should say, the prescription misuse, using them for not the way they were prescribed or not by someone who they were prescribed for, doubled between 2008 and 2013. And that's, I mean, that's a decade ago now. But... Still, and that was a decade ago. I mean, now it's like way worse. Um, and the last reason is to experiment. You know, adolescents, again, no frontal lobe. You're trying to figure out the world. You know, it's like you got to, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think there's anything overly wrong with trying to figure out where you fit in the world and try to figure out who you are in the world. Um, you, by nature of brain development, they are motivated to try new experiences. I'm going to also like add in there that, you know, we're in a society that, that really needs stimulus all the time, you know, with, with handheld phone, you know, the, the iPhone. Oh my gosh, and right. And, and it's, it's like, if you don't have something going on, you're bored. <laughs> so I oh would gosh. add in there out of boredom, people are probably trying to enhance their lives mm -hmm. by adding a stimulant, that, by adding oh. a, a, you know, a drug of some sort because I don't have my Xbox to play and I don't have my iPhone to, you know, or that's getting redundant. And so I'm going to try something new and, and you know, that's oh. something that, that is a reality. It's, I mean, think about a road trip. 
I feel like such an old human right now, but like a road trip. Oh, are we there yet? I'm bored. I'm like, I, when I was a kid, like I've said that sentence, like I literally had to sit in a car and start a window for a road trip. Like right. there were no movie players. There was no, I mean, I got a Game Boy when I was like 14 to play in the car. Like that was how cool I was. But like my kids on their five hour car ride we just took had cell phones and movies going and iPads the whole darn time. Like, And if they didn't, and nothing against your kids, all kids, oh. they'd lose their mind. Well, I stopped at my house when I was talking to my one daughter today. I'm bored. Which brings me to another interesting thing we learned in med school is that there's your brain can't tell the difference between being hungry, being bored, and being tired. So it's funny. My stomach can. One child of mine, always hungry or always bored, always want to eat something. I'm like, you're not hungry. You are literally bored. And the only reason you're bored is because you need someone to entertain you all the time. Yeah. So, no, I think you're totally right. We have a very overly entertain me generation coming up right which is scary it's scary because there are i mean drugs can entertain you (laughs) okay so really quickly the red flags so things to watch for um you know some of these are uh, extreme versions but i mean if you get to some of these it's it's pretty important to probably at least have these conversations so sudden or extreme changes in their friends I mean, this is this can be subtle at first, but if there there can be a big shift, and and it's funny because the adolescents I've seen, like looking back, parents can be like, "Yeah, whatever happened to that group of friends you used to hang out with?" And all of a sudden, now they're hanging out with this group of friends, and it happens like gradually. And again, they're independent teenagers; you don't always notice what's going on, but it's it's being sure to know that um, eating habits, sleeping patterns. Hygiene changes, school performance. Um, one patient in particular I had, it was like a straight-A student, and now we're floating C's, which is not a bad thing, but it was a total shift in like a semester. That's a big red flag. And I, I you know, being a parent, I, I will be more aware of what's going on based on my experiences, but as you know, as we're trying to educate, I think it's important for parents to really, really pay attention to things like who are they hanging out with? You know, what, what happened to those, those other friends that they had that, you know, basically you got to know and you just had this trust and all of a sudden now that person isn't coming around anymore right. and you're not seeing your child. It's their subtle things. And trying to stay in tune with what your kid's doing is important. And, well, and, and I would say the same thing for teachers and coaches. You know, watch. There's, there's, there are flags that go up. And, and if you're not paying attention, you're not going to see them. Well, and I think back to your point on the whole entertaining needing stimulus. Parents are, I mean, I'm just as bad, you know. You know, the kids are constantly needing entertainment. because They have to have constantly something going on. I mean, I've always got 9,000 things going on, too. So... Is it always easy to go on to the digital school thing to follow their grades? No, you take for granted. My kid always gets these good grades. Maybe you're not checking them as often. Or, you know, they're not in kindergarten. They're not bringing you home the papers like they did then. Shoot, report cards don't come home paper anymore. Like, that's just one more thing as a parent you got to check. And 
things can slide for a while before you quite realize it. And it's just, just being intentional about watching that. Um, yeah. Mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness used as a parent is key. Right. You can, you can not only see addiction issues or, or issues with getting in trouble, but you can also see mental health issues if you are mindful about, about what your kids are, are doing and, and their personalities and how they're, how they're going about their day. Which is also very difficult because they're teenagers and yeah, there's changes. Yeah, there's, but. there's personality and behavior and attitude changes too. And I think, I think that's what a lot of some of these red flags get chalked up to. Oh, that's just normal teenage behavior. Right. And, you know, and, and, and you don't know because every kid has got such a different personality as well. And these are going to be hard conversations. If uh, the parents that are listening, these are going to be hard conversations asking your, your child what's going on. It might take a little more um, TLC to get it out of them. But I, get, I, I can guarantee you these conversations are a lot easier than the ones that you're going to have when they're sitting in jail, sitting in jail or sitting in a treatment center or you know, sitting in a hospital. Right. So just a couple things to think about other things. Like if this is something you're concerned about, or, you know, you're having these conversations or maybe your child is, you know, maybe experimenting or maybe it really does need some help. Um, it's not forgetting the mental health things, you know, the whole, are we treating something? Um, but also the other things that go along with this, you know, using substances, we lower inhibitions. So poor judgment has your child been in a situation in which now we need to worry about a whole bunch of other things. Like, has there been sexual assault? Has there been other high risk behaviors? Like these are things that do need to be checked out because you don't want to miss something else as well and this is where the shame can sometimes get in the way like I'm afraid to bring my kid in because I'm my kid's doing substances and now that reflects bad on me but now there's something else underlying that also needs to be addressed um, and then monitoring the driving because that of course could be devastating uh, and I, I think for, for me it's I, I just want to say how important it is for Parents to, to not shame their kids if, if there was a mistake or something. I've had this conversation with my kids to say, you know what, you guys can always come to me. I'm not going to, um, you know, yell at you. I'm not going to scream at you. I'm not going to um, do what a lot of people would think if they got in trouble. Be present. Make sure you're caring. If you don't know how to respond to a certain situation, talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. there are plenty of people out there. There's plenty of organizations that you can call and say, Hey, I'm having trouble with my, my child. And I really need some guidance on how to talk to them because we're not experts. <laughs> you know, we're not all experts at, at, at addiction. We're not all experts at mental health. So no one's an expert why? at kids. <laughs> right. And why would we think that it's okay to just go off on our own, go all rogue and, and try and just shame our kids into not doing it again. Right. You know, that's where I'm talking about as far as, you know, how are you going to respond? Are you just going to punish? You know, how are we going to respond as a school? Are we just going to punish? Are we just going to shame them? How can we do a better job? That's all what it is. All it comes down to do better. Right. You know, we've got a whole generation of kids that are coming up that are, are very susceptible to becoming 
you know, in a substance use disorder situation. So why can't we do better going forward as far as prevention? Using the information, we have more information about this topic now than we've ever had. Right. So let's use it for the positive. Right. You know? And I think what you said is, you know, like always being open to like have them come and talk. But I think, and, and I'm not great at this luckily i'm still my kids are still a little bit younger i have a little bit more wiggle room is not always telling them what to do or giving them advice like waiting until they ask for the advice because sometimes they just want to vent at you they don't really want to know your opinion or your thoughts or your unless they ask for it you know like do you want me to tell you what i think no okay i'll keep my mouth shut you know like take advantage of the moment they just want to vent at you right because they're not going to want to come to you if you're always like telling them what to do or giving them advice and telling them what they did wrong. Sometimes they just want to talk. Listening is very hard sometimes, <laughs> you know, just shutting your mouth and listening and, and letting, letting your child know that, that that's what you're going to do. Right. I, I'm not going to sit here and correct you. I'm not going to, you know, yell at you. I'm not going to tell you you're doing wrong. I just want to listen to you. And that is a very rare thing. I think when it comes down to parenting, Mm-hmm. And I think kids don't feel like their voice matters. Right. And I think that it's time that we start letting our kids' voices matter because we don't know what they're going through. So let's get to know them and then, and then see how we can help them. Right. This doesn't necessarily perfectly fit, but it kind of goes into the fact with your prevention and with talking about it. We talked about, you know, is this going to encourage it to talk about it? Like we're going to you know, have an LADC or somebody in the school, well, that's just going to encourage them to, you know, think it's okay. Kind of like the whole condom thing. And there's this quote that came from like 19, the 1980s. This is from the 1980s. I don't promote drug use. I don't promote car accidents either, but I still think seatbelts are a good idea. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, we're trying to <laughs> ignore a problem. And, and hoping in school it's going to go away by not talking about it. There you go. Well, <laughs> I, I just wanted to, you know, the the one thing that could pop in my mind, I was thinking about, I don't know if, if many of you were, were early 90s uh, Saturday Night Live fans, but if you think about the episode of uh, uh, where Chris Farley was Matt Foley and living in a van down by a river, and they came in to talk to the kids and basically scare them out of using marijuana. That is not that does the not way work. to do uh, adolescent uh, work with with drug use. Nope. You know, don't get the scare tactics out and tell them this is what's going to happen with your life. It's time that we start listening to our kids and start finding out what's going on. And I think that's the one thing I've done uh, way different than I would have done if it hadn't been for my addiction was... I opened up that line of communication with my oldest son. I said, you know, I I want you to know that it's okay to talk to me about whatever's going on, and I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to punish you. If you made a mistake and you went to a party and you had a drink, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, you're grounded. You're not going to get your license, all that stuff. It's about making it an open communication. And that's not saying that you have to be their best friend. It's just about being there for them, being their parent. Too many times I think parents just want to be their, their their kids' friends. It's not about being a friend. It's about being their parent right. and loving them. I mean, your, your goal is to guide them to be independent adults. So you can't, 
I mean, you're going to punish them, and then it's kind of like the old adage of, like, the Catholic school kids end up being the worst ones. This was how it was. My parents both went to Catholic school, and they used to make fun of it all the time because their graduating class, the ones that went to the Catholic school, ended up in a lot more trouble later on. And and so it's you want to let them explore and be open to having that conversation, but you can't micromanage either. No. And, and that's, that's the, the real important part, I think, with everybody that's involved with adolescence is treat them with respect, listen to what they say, build that trust, and, and, and great things will happen. And I know it's, a, it's the one thing that I learned right away when I was being a teacher. Kids aren't going to care what you know until they know that you care. And then, and then you can actually make a difference. And, uh, and that's, and that's really what it's about is making a difference in kids' lives. And, and that's, I think what's important as we are looking at adolescence and, and this whole issue with, uh, you know, the world of addiction, I think that the more people kids have to talk to that they're able to be, you know, honest and not feel judged, the more likely that kid is going to have success. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to be their friend. And this goes for teachers too. We're not about being their best friend and chummy chummy. It's about being a respected adult, right? That, that can give them some some guidance, right? That's what they need. And it's I think it's hard as a parent to be okay with that. Like I think you're like, no, I am my kid's person. Like I am their parent. I am the only one they're going to come to. No, it's a, I think accepting that you want as many role models or positive influences in in uh, in adults in your kids' lives so they have people to talk to. Like, that is going to be way better than the helicopter, no, I am the only person you get to talk to kind of situation. Takes a village. (laughs) All right, everybody, thank you so much. I think we're going to come back for the next week. We're going to have quite a bit of other interviews coming up. If those Um, of you are interested in uh, Ralph Berry's part two, it's coming. It's coming. Thank you. Working together, we can move addiction to recovery. If you would be so kind, please go to wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a five-star rating, possibly a comment, but for sure click to follow us so you never miss an episode. Most importantly, don't forget to share our episode with a friend. And as always, if you would like to ask us a question, have a topic recommendation, or would even want to be a guest on our show, email us at addictiontorecoverypodcast at gmail.com. That's addiction, the number two recovery podcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at A2R Podcast or on Facebook or Instagram at Addiction to Recovery Podcast.